This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Today is September 28th, 2022. My name is Braden Dennis. As always, joined by the legend himself, Simon Belanger. We are talking mental frameworks today. You guys know how I like to go off on some extremely strange tangent, bring it all the way back around to investing. Simon, you're going to talk about dividend income portfolio and the people love that. This will be good. How are you feeling this morning, buddy? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Had like a solid six, seven hours of sleep, which is gold when you have a newborn. So feeling Dude, that's pretty good. good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, she's been doing well. She's been improving, you know, four hours stretch. So can't complain. That's solid. Probably as much as I was getting before we had her anyways. Nice. Yeah, there you go. I feel I'm a little nervous right now because I'm a little excited. I can't give all the details right now. I'll share the details on the podcast at some point. But I feel like I, I'm about to play in like a very important sports game. That's the level of like, you know, the tingles on my back because I just became a millionaire, buddy. Like, right, like literally within the last hour. Yeah. Like very paper. I can't share any details, but that was my goal before the age of 30 and I smashed that. So, Simo, let's talk about World War II, their planes, and how it relates to investors looking at the wrong thing. So, we had the Canadian science investor at one point there. And I like to look at these mental frameworks in very obscure ways because it can help us think about how to position our mindset for investing in individual securities. Or if you're in a passive invest in your way, putting DCA in it all the way to a nice sum at the end. That also works. Now, if you look in World War II, planes would come home and they would come home with a ton of bullet holes. And they were very concerned because so many planes were getting shot down from like American planes were getting shot down in the war just from regular bullets. And so they're like, how do we limit this? Like we need to give it more armor. Like we need to make it like anti-bullet armor like the tanks have, but like that's too heavy, right? Like that's not going to work. And so there's this balance between the plane being very maneuverable and light, but then still being durable from bullet fire from the ground. And so what they did was they analyzed all the planes coming home and they noticed that there was a very extreme density in bullet holes in the middle of the plane, the wings, and kind of like up this, the main spine of the, the aircraft. And they did this analysis and they said, okay, look at all these bullet holes we need to add armor in these locations. We can't do it to the whole plane because it'll be too heavy. Do you see a problem with that thinking, right? Like let's add armor to the locations where there are bullet holes. Are you seeing the problem with this, this kind of takeaway from the data? Uh, I'm, and it's okay if you're not. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'm not a physicist or anything like that. So obviously if you <laughs> The wings are pretty important, right? So if you start putting too much weight on the wings and armors, it could actually just affect how the plane flies. But again, I'm not an engineer or anything like that. So that would be my assumption. Fair enough. And I think that that's a fair assumption. You can see the image I have here on the document. It shows the density of bullet holes on the wings and in the center of the plane. Now, 
if you notice near the sides and the engine of the plane, almost no bullet holes. I said, oh, okay, well, I guess that doesn't need armor. This is a complete error because the reason the planes are not returning with bullet holes there is because those are the ones that are getting shot down and don't return home. And so it's actually the inverse of what the initial thought was. You actually need to increase the armor in the places that there were no bullet holes because those were the planes that were actually not returning home. There was no data from those planes. And so it's very important to look at data, figure out what's useful and you know think a little bit deeper. Now, investors do a very similar thing. They look at the information they're given and the information they're given at headlines and very surface level type stuff and apply it as signal when it's really noise. So if you are holding a stock for 10 years, most investors, even professionals, will have their correlation of their thoughts on how the business is doing with the share price. They think, okay, the company is doing great or not great based on how the stock has performed. We all do it. I do it. There's a bias towards that. Now, let's look at from this post from Market Sentiment on Substack. He did this little analysis and he shows, okay, let's look at United Health Group, okay? UNH stock. I think it's UNH. Yeah, UNH. It is a mega large cap company in the US. It's one of the largest cap companies in the world. It's a whopping 500 billion in market cap. Like it is literally one of the biggest companies in the world. Now, if you look at United Health Group, they have compounded free cash flow at 13% per year, earnings at 14% per year, sales at 11% a year. So low double digit compounding consistently for like close to 25 years. One of the most steady linear compounders of any publicly traded securities in the world. And if you held that business and only looked at the business fundamentals, you would have never been silly enough to sell it. And so if you're looking at the business fundamentals, you come out with a really clear picture of how it's doing and thinking like a business owner and not ready to sell it. And so it's kind of like, you know, what data set are we looking at? Are we looking at the bullet holes on the wings? Or are we looking at bullet holes hitting the engine that are actually the problem? And so if you look over the last 10 years, during those numbers I just talked about, they compounded wonderfully. You had max drawdowns in 2012 of over 20%. So the stock fell over 20% in 2012, over 10% in 2013, 10% in 2014, over 12% in 2015, 18% in 2018, almost 20% in 2019. You had a 36% drop in March of 2020. And now you're on a drawdown in 2021 and 2022 of both over 10%. Now, shareholders of United Health Group have made a boatload of money. They faced those drawdowns, but shareholders who focused on the business made a ridiculous amount of money. Now, this is, of course, a cherry pick stat. But United Health Group is up 363,000% since IPO. And so you have to remember, and I have to remind myself and force myself to remember that we're owning businesses, not little tickers trading around a screen, and focus on the data set that really provides signal instead of noise. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Obviously, at first, I was wondering where you were going at with the, the warplanes. Well, you always have to. Yeah. 
you always have to wonder, how is this going to come around? Yeah, and I was on Twitter last night and I saw a tweet from someone, I think they were quoting an article saying that there's a lot of Canadian millennial investors that are thinking of just liquidating their stock portfolio right now because they're scared that it might go down even further. And that's a good, you know, I think it's a good link with what you just talked about, because I think first it shows that one, they probably don't understand either what they're invested in or how the stock market actually works. I think that's probably one of the big cause. And then the second reason is, you know, just caving into all that fear going on because at the end of the day it's pretty simple when you invest you know you want to buy low and sell high you don't want to buy high and sell low and i have a feeling a lot of those investors unfortunately invested when we were smack in the bull market maybe it's their first time that they're seeing these drawdowns they're hearing all the doom and gloom that's on cnbc or you know whatever mainstream financial media you're looking at And they will, you know, I wouldn't be surprised that a lot of people end up selling. And then, you know, a few years down the line, five, 10 years, whatever it is, they look back and just regret selling. Yeah, no, totally. And that is at the peak of despair and the peak of the sentiment going, I'm selling everything and just waiting. That kind of test limits of investors, both retail and in the professional space and people managing money for clients at that peak of negativity, you somewhere there find a bottom in markets. And that doesn't mean that it is here now. It doesn't mean that you know it's, it's here tomorrow. But it tests your limit to remain invested. And somewhere in there, markets find their lowest point. And that's just how behavioral finance works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, uh, we'll move on to some dividend talk. It's not quite a dividend portfolio. I just did this exercise because I wanted to look at what dividend yields are looking at like right now compared to a year ago. I'd been looking at some dividend plays myself, some I already own just to add to the existing position and some potential new ones. So I'd notice definitely that the yield right now that you can get is higher than a year ago, but it was more anecdotal. So I wanted to just pick out about 10 businesses. Some of them that I think are really good businesses, other I don't know as well. So just keep that in mind. Now I know Canadians, we all know Canadians love their dividend stocks. I think it's probably a byproduct of the TSX being so heavily in financials, so banks, insurance companies, for example, and energy. So for those not aware, I as of August 31st of this year, financial represented 31.1% of the index and energy 185 So basically half of the index is in those two sectors alone. So clearly you can find some pretty high yield in those two sectors specifically. And I know a lot of our listeners, they love their energy stocks or financial stocks because amongst other things, they do provide that good dividend yield. I think in general, Canadians have been, well, overweight the TSX for one. Yeah. You yeah. know, we both can agree on that. Mm-hmm. A little overweight the TSX. And by that, by a byproduct of being overweight the TSX, you're very heavily invested in the big banks. Now, that has kicked back into a positive correlation because the big banks have been wonderful assets to own for Canadians for however long it's been. You know, decades of outperformance, very steady 
pretty low drawdowns generally and that whopping like four to five percent yield growing like yield on cost for these bank shareholders has made many Canadians extremely wealthy. You've heard stories of people making like 800k a year just in TD bank dividends. And so I totally understand why that has happened. Yeah, and just going back to your previous segment, I've been a big proponent of that saying, you know, dividend stocks, if you have a full portfolio of dividend stocks, I mean, it may not necessarily provide you with the best total returns, but in times like right now when there's massive drawdowns, for a lot of people having you know, a lot of dividend stocks that pay a good yield. Hopefully they are good businesses because there are some dividend traps and actually good businesses as well in there. But hopefully it prevents them from actually selling because they do get that income. So I think there is some value there. Maybe you don't get always the best total returns, but if it prevents you from selling in a panic, that's really good in my book. And just a little disclaimer here, the dividends I'm going to be referring to currently, there are some of these that recently hiked their dividends. So I just projected into the next year because for the most part, the ones that just hiked it do so every year. So if they have a quarterly dividend, they just hiked it. I multiplied that by four and then obviously divided by the share price that's currently there. So just a little disclaimer if people are trying to figure out, you know, what I use. And of course, if you're looking to invest in any of these, you do your research, definitely look at the payout ratio, how the business is going, the sales, the margins. These are all very important things. And of course, if you're focusing on dividend, if they do have a dividend policy, something you should be aware of as well. Anything to add? I'd say, and I'm looking at the portfolio here, you you have well the ten names. Well, yeah. ten. Sorry, sorry. Not, let <laughs> yeah. Me, yeah, let me rephrase. And of course, none of this is advice. Just, just some ideas, and to give you some context of how much yields have increased yeah. when stock prices have gone down. I think for the most part, all the names you're listing here fall into this category. But really, focus on the ones that are hiking, even in tough times, like hiking that dividend, and really like growing sales and earnings and hiking that dividend during any time. Like these are the kind of blue chipper income type names that you're going to want to hold. And I think that many of these in the basket fit that criteria. Yeah, I think most of them actually recently hiked in the past year when I was looking at it, because obviously I went, I had to go look at the dividend history to be able to, to do these. Now, the first one, we've talked about it a whole lot, Brookfield Asset Management. So it's currently yielding 1.35%. Last year, so a year ago, it was 0.95%. So that's pretty much like a 50%, pretty close to it, 50% increase in just a year. And for those wondering, Brookfield does have a lot of debt, and we've been talking a bit about that. I encourage you to look at their financial statements and just go look how that debt is structured. They have a ton of debt that's due in 10 plus years. So they're very good at structuring their debt in a very advantageous way for the mothership, but also their subsidiaries. So I've had that question quite a few times. And on top of that, they do have very stable cash flows. What's not to like? Okay. Yeah, what's not to like with this name here? Yeah. And they do hike their dividends. They have a dividend policy, so they hike it regularly here every year. Now, the second one, one of those big banks, well, the biggest of the big banks, Royal Banks. So they're currently 
ticker RY.TO. Currently yielding 4.16%. Last year, it was 3.38%. And all these names, it could be a combination of lower share price and, you know, dividend hikes. Some of them, the share price pretty similar, but they actually hike their dividends. Some of them, it's just lower share price altogether. But yeah, Royal Bank, probably my favorite of all the, the big banks here, just because of their diversification in revenue and their global presence. The next one, Canadian Natural Resources, because I wanted to add an oil and gas play, an energy play here. And the reason why I chose this one is ticker, obviously, CNQ.TO, in case you people weren't aware of it. So they're currently yielding 4.8% compared to 4.2% last year. And the reason why this is a really good one, especially if you want stable income, this was one of the few companies that did not slash their dividend during the kind of spring of 2020 when oil really really drop. And they are, you know, their metrics tend to be really top of the line, especially if you start comparing them with Suncor, for example. I Dude, CNQ, if you look at all the names, you look at the yield, it's got to be up there in top tier quality if you are an energy investor. It's one of the best names in town. Yeah. And for those wondering, I did not include the special dividend that was just paid because it is a special dividend. I only include basically projected the quarterly that's being paid right now. The next one, another bank, another one of the, is this the second largest TD? I think so. Yeah. Not, yeah. I think it's the second. RBC, and then TD. TD. Yeah. So TD. Yeah. And then I think Scotia or PM, I don't know. Yeah. I think, in. yeah, I'm not sure. But anyway, so CIBC being the smallest by market cap, I think. Yeah. And so TD.TO, the Ticker. Right now, it's yielding 4.22%. Last year, 3.73%. Not too much to add here. I think it's another one that's interesting just because it has some a lot of diversification in the US. So a bit less exposure to Canada. But again, the majority of their exposure is still in Canada, but it has a substantial business in the US. The next one here, Equinix, ticker EQIX, I believe. I forgot. Just going on memory. EQIX, yeah. yep. It's one I own. It's one you own as well. So this one is yielding 2.18% right now compared to 1.44 last year. It's pretty rare that Equinix is over 2%. I'll just say that. It's a data read for those who are not aware. You can go back to some of our older episodes. I think you actually did a deep dive as well at some point. If it was early this year or last year. The episode was titled The Perfect Dividend Stock. There you if go. If people want to check that out. Yeah. Now, another one, I don't think we've talked about this. One, one. thing to add, oh, Equinix yeah. has 78 quarters of consecutive sales growth. So just to go back to what we were talking about before, you know, we're, we're focusing on businesses that actually have strong fundamentals. Don't just pay a dividend yield. That is so critical in your analysis. And Equinix has 78 quarters of consecutive sales growth, the longest streak of any company in the S&P 500. Yeah, exactly. Now, the next one, Realty Income. So for those not aware what this one, ticker is O. Realty Income is a commercial real estate investment trust or a REIT. They lease real estate to businesses like grocery stores, convenience stores, dollar stores, quick service restaurants, and grudge stores. They're typically kind of, you know, freestanding buildings, so they're not within malls. They have triple net leases, which means that the tenant pays for taxes, maintenance, and insurance. So their costs are, you know, relatively stable. They do have other costs. 5% yield right now, 4.47 last year 
this year. It's widely known as one of the best in terms of that type of commercial real estate investment trust. And I think they also, I'm just going on memory here, when I look, I believe they also have a pretty consistent history of hiking their dividend as well. Now, the next one, I wanted to add a tech play in here. I guess Equinix, you can kind of make a, I guess it's also a tech play, but Microsoft, so MSFT. This one does not happen very often that Microsoft is yielding more than 1%. It is yielding 1.15% right now. They do have a history of hiking their dividend as well. Last year, it was 0.77%. That's a name, actually, I already own and I definitely have on my radar to add more because big tech has been uh, drawdown heavily. And for the most part, I have, I think most of them on my radar with the exception of Netflix and Facebook. Netflix, I just don't think they have a great business model. That's just my opinion. And Facebook, I just, I can't get myself to invest in, sorry, Meta. <laughs> I just cannot. I don't care how cheap it gets. I just, yeah, I won't do it. Too icky? Yeah, pretty much. It's also, we've talked about this yeah. a lot too, which is, the big, the big bet, bet on the yeah. metaverse will go down in every business book written about this era as the greatest move or the worst move in business history from Zuckerberg. There's no in between, in my opinion. It is zero or hundred with that bet. And I think he knows that. Microsoft has become a utility. I think of Microsoft as a utility. And match, I mean, I was going to say Microsoft at maturation. I mean, what is it like $2 trillion company? As the income statement continues to become more profitable, more profitable, I know they're already just generating cash hand over fist, but they have a lot of segments that are going to just be pumping out even more cash. Like look at Azure growing over 40% year over year consecutively that thing's going to just make so much cash it's even like what are they going to do with it and income investors are going to be rewarded they're going to buy back stock they're going to increase the dividend it's over 1% yielding now your yield on cost on microsoft in 20 years i have a feeling will be quite nice yeah and i don't know have you heard anything about the activision blizzard acquisition any news on that i feel like it's been pretty quiet yeah. but the arbitrage is insane yeah like the market thinks that the chances of the deal going through is at like 60 oh. percent at this point okay no i was just wondering if you look yeah. at the arbitrage if you look at the arbitrage yeah. but i think it's higher i think you can make money with this arbitrage i don't know when the deal's supposed to close but i think that you know, buffett's playing the arbitrage yeah i knew he was i was just wondering but yeah just kind of sidetracked a little bit here and now the next name, TELUS, ticker T.TO. I thought, you know, just uh, having a telco here makes a whole lot of sense. I do like TELUS just because uh, they're investing a lot, obviously, in their network, but also in other ventures, like they're investing in TELUS Health. They bought, that's something we didn't talk about, but they bought LifeWorks too. They made an offer earlier this year. So they are definitely diversifying a little bit. What is that? They manage Healthcare? like they manage like a wellness for employers, I think, stuff like that, and also mm -hmm. a pension. 
Yeah, so I think they're diversifying a little bit here. The reason in terms of TELUS, they're paying 4.84% right now in terms of dividend yield compared to 44 last year. So I think, again, especially if you're trying to build a, an income stream, if you're closer to retirement, you'll definitely need some names that pay a higher yield to start. You want the dividend to increase over time for sure. But if you want to get some decent income, that's something you have to look at. The next name here, Canadian Tire, so ticker ctc-a.to, it's paying 4.4% right now, and last year 2.53. This is a combination of the share price going down, but also some massive increase in the dividends. I don't know the financials like all that well from Canadian Tire. We've talked about it a little bit just on our earnings episode, and there's clearly questions about growth because they're predominantly, if I think they're all in Canada. I don't think they have any operations in the States or maybe very marginally with some of the brands they own. But I was kind of impressed with, you know, just from a yield perspective, 4.4%. That is quite high. It is quite high for a good old Canadian tire. That's is the REIT still spun off? I don't know. Publicly traded? Yeah, I really don't Canadian know. Canadian Tire. I'm going to look that up while you're doing the last one. So the last one, speaking of REIT, so Granite Real Estate Investment Trust, Granite REIT, so the ticker is grn-un.to, yielding 4.65% now, was 3.37% last year. Again, this one is an industrial REIT, so one of their main tenants, and it was a spinoff of Magna, but now they have definitely more tenants. I haven't looked at their tenant breakdown recently. I know like four or five years ago, the last time I really dug into them, one of the big risks for them is that it was predominantly Magna International that was their tenant. So obviously you have to be careful when it's one tenant so important for you because if there's headwinds for that tenant, the REIT that leases to them will probably be filling that as well. They've done a really good job of diversifying outside of just their main tenant being Magna after the spin out. So they've done a really good job of that because I agree, it was a significant risk you had to think about when, you know, you have all these like, I think Magna is like 50-ish plants in Ontario alone. And so it's 50 of like 350 worldwide manufacturing plants, but there was a lot of push, I want to say in the last 15 years to try to not manufacture in Ontario for these large international corporations because you had extremely high labor cost and electricity cost and input cost compared to the US, compared to Mexico, compared to China and some parts of Western Europe, of Eastern Europe. And so uh, they've done a really good job moving away from that. Now, I think it is one of the highest quality industrial REITs you can find. I did just find out, I just looked it up because I don't look at Canadian Tire very often. The Canadian Tire Real Estate Investment Trust is, yep, it's spun off. It still trades under CRT.UN. It yields almost 6%. Holy smokes. (laughs) But that just ties back to what we were just talking about before single tenant type name, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know what I can do, you know, at some point this fall before Christmas, I know last year got a lot of positive feedback when I did, I think it was 15 or 20, I can't remember, dividend stocks for income. Maybe we can revisit that and go into a bit more detail. Back then, I my goal was to get an average starting yield of 4%. I wouldn't be surprised if right now you can probably have a good portfolio with even slightly higher than that. And even having 
some GICs as well a little bit in terms of having that stable capital and income. Now it makes a whole lot more sense when you can get, you know, one year 4.55%. I know EQ Bank's offering that right now or 4.7 compounded annually over several years. So the GICs are becoming a lot more attractive, especially if you're looking for income. Clearly, dividend stocks, especially if they're increasing their dividend, there's a lot of attractiveness there. But when you're looking to preserve capital, GIC is a good option as well. I own, of this 10, I'm just looking, I own Brookfield Asset Management. I own Equinix. And that's the two of the 10 that I personally own. I'd be happy to own Microsoft. And the rest of them, I would be okay owning, but not particularly excited. Yeah. For say. For me, I've been... And again, this is for me. Yeah, this is, exactly. This is, I'm not... You know, I'm not 65 retiring looking to build an income. Portfolio. Yeah, and for me, I'm actually looking to add a couple more dividend stocks to my TFSC because, you know, I just had a daughter and I'm trying to just build a little bit of more of a safety net. We have an emergency fund, but I think it's just great to also be able to, you know, either reinvest a dividend or, you know, shut that reinvestment off and be able to withdraw it if you do need that extra little income. So I own right now, bam, equity. And Microsoft. And the three, there's a couple names on here that I'm actually looking at. So, Canadian Natural Resources, Realty Income. And Granite is the other one. So those are the the three names I'm kind of thinking about. I like those. Yeah, so I need to do a bit more research. Like like I said, Granite, I researched it years ago. One of my big criteria will be what the kind of percentage is still allocated to Magna International versus the other tenants. Because they do have some. They have about 15, 20 now. But, you know, it could still be predominantly Magna. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, they've done a good job of moving away from it. But it's still like, you know, a very key tenant, of course. No, I, I agree with that. I think that's good. You know, you, you became a dad and now you're like <laughs> income portfolio blue chip guy. <laughs> well, no, I, I still have. Becomes uh, a dad, instantly blue chip income guy. I love it. I wouldn't say that specifically, but I do have, you know, some more risk in my portfolio, especially, you know, some growth stocks, but also Bitcoin. And I'm also looking at names like, you know, I just said like big tech, I'm finding really attractive right now. So it's not just dividend mm-hmm. stocks, but I'm definitely trying to put a little more emphasis on that for that reason. Yeah. Hey, you know what? Maybe Google will slash their capital incineration program called Other Bets <laughs> and just, and just pay start dividend. paying a little bit of cash out to shareholders. I keep thinking that that's quite in the realm of possibilities within the next year or two, but I've been saying that for a couple of years now. So maybe it's just wishful thinking. I don't care about the dividend, but I care about them stop incinerating money. <laughs> I guess when you make $22 billion in earnings from the search business a quarter, then it doesn't really matter that much, does it? Did you see that the CEO, is it Manish Paprai? Is it Manish Paprai? He's an investor. Who's the CEO of Google? Sorry, I always forget his name. Sundar Pichai? Sundar Pichai. Right? Okay. Is that it? You don't seem sure. Yeah. He, okay. No, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you. Yeah, confused. no, Sundar Pichai. Yeah, Sundar yeah. Pichai. So let, was... let me Google. Yeah, Sundar Pichai, <laughs> CEO of Google. You know what? The big tech CEOs. I mix them all up. Yeah. Like I literally will say that Tim Cook's the CEO of Microsoft at one point, even though of course that's not true. It's the CEO of Apple. Yeah. They're all just mega bajillionaires. It's Tim Apple, by the way, but uh, no. Tim Apple, yeah. sorry. No, I was, just, I was just quick thing. I read an article. Apparently they had an all hands on deck meeting recently where he got a whole lot of flack from Google employees because they're looking to reduce costs. And I think mm. obviously with, 
you know, it's kind of, you know, for shareholders, it's good. But if you're an employee, you're just seeing them like gush cash left, right and center. It's like, oh, now you're making like kind of cost cutting. So I read an article on that. Apparently, he got a lot of flack from employees. Yeah. Well, any CEO with that many employees definitely gets flack on a regular yeah. basis. Yeah. yeah. Sundar Pichai, Satya Nadella. These guys are killing it. All right, let's move on here to the Kelly Criterion. The Kelly Criterion is a position sizing mental model I've discussed before. It aims to find the optimum stake to bet in a gambling scenario. And it's been adopted as a mental framework for investors and position sizing as well. A little bit less mathematically, but still still valid. So it was used by Ed Thorpe to determine the perfect way to play blackjack. So it's using optimum betting sizes given set probabilities. So when certain cards are laid out on the table, you would determine, you gotta be very smart, but you would determine basically the perfect size to bet optimally given the probability you win or lose. And so it's a very mathematical approach. You can look up the Kelly Criterion formula online if you wish. You know, it's basically looking at the probability of winning, the probability of losing, and expected return to determine perfect bet size. You, as a poker guy, I'm sure you've looked at lots of like theory on how to ideally size bets given what's on the table, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah. And so, for investing, determining probabilities for us being right, it's kind of our job, right? Like, like, what is the probability you're being right? But it's more nuanced than a game of blackjack or Texas Hold'em because in those games, there's a given number of cards and variables. The game has given probabilities at any point given what is on the table in a regular deck of cards. Now, the stock market's not that simple, but it's still helpful to use this kind of thinking for position sizing. Now, here's an example I like to use. Simon, you got two options, okay? Here's your two options. Option one... I give you is you can 5x your money right now if you guess heads or tails correctly. Okay. So good offer. 5x your money on a 50% chance. Like that's, you take that all day. Or you can double your money if the sun comes up tomorrow. Okay. So you have a 50 50 to 5x your money, or, you know, you're, you double your money with a 100% chance of happening, which is the sun comes up tomorrow. And if it doesn't come up tomorrow, well, you've got bigger issues. How are you thinking about those two options? I mean, it's not as easy as people might think. You just have to do the expected value. So basically, you right. take the sum and then, you know, the heads and tails, basically, you know, once out of two times, you end up with zero. And then once out of two times, you end up 5x your money. And is that greater than doubling your money, you know, every single time tomorrow? That's how you have to think about it. That's kind of a poker way of thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And the implied return of 5x your money on a 50% is actually mathematically better. But your certainty is different. So you're you're very interested in both proposals. They're both great, right? You know, 5x your money 50-50, that's a wonderful bet. You take that. The odds on, you know, that are amazing. It's a no-brainer, really. But the way you're looking at that is you're not going to risk your entire portfolio on a 50-50. You're going to size that smaller. So you're going to say, Braden, I'm very interested in that bet, 
but I'm not going to give you my entire, you know, I'm not going all in with my chip stack. But with option B, you know, double your money if the sun comes up tomorrow, you throw in your whole stack of chips. You throw in your entire net worth to double your money tomorrow, 100%. It's of course, like you're going to do that. So the real takeaway here is that you're betting much bigger on the probability of the sun comes up. You move in all your chips. It's not that the other one is a bad investment. It's actually a wonderful implied return. You're just sizing your position differently, right? Like that's the main takeaway. Now, we're not betting or gambling in the stock market. And, you know, you're not putting your entire portfolio in any way, of course, like that's silliness. But this type of theory and application is useful for sizing your positions. And the way I think about it is matching your conviction for a good outcome. If my conviction for a good outcome is very, very, very high, I'm willing to make a position very, very high in terms of percentage. And on the contrary, if it's a 5x, but I might be wrong type scenario in my probabilities, I'm not going to size it the same way as I would something I'm more confident in and something that's you know more like your segment there, the blue chip dividend payers, probably more comfortable sizing that differently than you know, some high tech growth stock that, you know, has a huge outcome, but the probability of you being wrong is much higher than the probability of, you know, one of these very established utilities being wrong. Those are not equal. And so this is a just a useful way to think about conviction and sizing your position and your willingness to be wrong because you'll be wrong at some point, right? Like it's it's just the nature of the game. Yeah, and obviously like people know I, I you know, I used to play Mo Poker. I don't play really that much anymore with a child, but, you know, professional poker players who play cash games, not tournaments, the best ones, you know, they're great players, but, you know, the ones that have longevity also use good bankroll management. So that means that, you know, they may play a thousand dollars or, you know, even 10 grand on the table, but they have, you know, half a million dollars as a backup that they can use for poker because people sometimes don't realize this but you know we'll keep it simple pocket aces against any other hand if you go all in right away before seeing any cards you're only an 82 percent favorite it'll range depending on what the other hand is but you know it's not a guarantee and those guys are smart enough to know that they need to have a large bankroll you know whether it's 50x or 100x what they're playing to be able to sustain those hits because they could lose that hand five times in a row. It does happen. It's unlikely, but it can happen. Right. So they're looking at that and going, okay, right out of the gate, just seeing two cards, nothing else on the table. I have a very good chance of success here. And so I'm going to size that very aggressively, but I'm not going to you know, deplete my bankroll, as you said, just based on that very good chance of me winning. I'm going to play it aggressively because the odds are in my favor, but I'm you know, I'm going to be aware of the chance that I could be it's very, very rarely involved. 100% in poker. I'll just say that. It does happen sometimes, but very rarely. Yeah. Yeah. And more so in the market, nothing's 100%. Nothing is guaranteed. And so that's just risk management 101. Should we go to this last segment? 
Yeah, I think. Well, I mean, listener question. Yeah, how we doing? How we doing? Right. Four, four. I think we're good, right? Yeah, I think so. It'll be uh, you know it. probably a, a bit short of an hour total. Now I got a great listener question on Twitter from at Evans Shirley Art, and the question was pretty simple. We touched on it, I guess, parts of it over time, but the question was: Should you add money to stocks you already own or start new position? Now, I'll go over how I approach it and kind of the main things that come to mind. I don't know if you approach it exactly the same way. I have a feeling that you probably do a little bit. But here are kind of the four main things that I'll consider and something you should, you know, think about when you're considering anything, either adding to an existing position or just starting a new one. Well, the first thing for me is knowing how many individual holdings I have, because we have talked about that. Personally, for me, sweet spot is like 15 to 20, but I'm the most comfortable with, I would say, 13 to 15. So 20 is kind of uh, pretty close to a hard cap for me, just because if I go more than that, I know I don't really have the time to be able to stay on top of all those companies. And I'm not including here index funds because those are just very simple in terms of you know broadbacks indices you set it and forget it so i don't consider those in that 20 kind of cap so for me it's pretty simple here if i already have 20 individual holdings then i should be adding to one of my existing position but if i think it's a better idea to start a new position instead then i need to really ask myself Do I have more conviction in this new holding than at least one of my current holdings? And if so, the answer is probably I should be thinking about exiting that existing position because I lost conviction in it. Of course, this is something I'll do over a long period of time. It's not going to be on a whim. And if I'm thinking of starting a new position, it'll be a company that I've had on my radar for a while. Yeah, no, I'm with you. It's really like knowing yourself, right? Like if you have 30 holdings and you're like, oh my goodness, I need to cut back here and just know what your tolerance is. And and that's why some people do the hybrid approach with index, index investing and owning individual securities. I think that it makes sense for a lot of DIY investors. Yeah, exactly. Now, the second thing to consider is chances are you know the companies you own much better than a potential new position. I know there's a lot of people that will be super diligent before they start a position, but I think it's human nature. Obviously, you have extra incentive of following a company that you already own. Obviously, you know, I hope people stay on top of their individual holdings on a regular basis. I'm not saying here, you know, review the whole, you know, 10Q or quarterly release you know, from A to Z every single quarter, but at least keeping an eye on those key performance indicators, like you've mentioned before, those KPIs. Because of that, you know, you'll likely know these companies that you already own better. And hopefully if you do own them, like I said, my first point, you'll have, you know, strong conviction in them. So if there is a drop in the valuation, then very often, you know, what you already own may be just a logical choice to add to that position. And if the markets are broadly down like they are right now, and you don't want to add to at least one of the stocks that you own, that's probably a sign that you need to review your portfolio. And there might be at least a name or two that you should probably consider selling or at least have on your kind of wait and see, and I'll give it a few more quarters. If you don't know what you own, when volatility hits, you won't know what to do. And so I think that this is probably one of the most, I don't know the other points you're making here, but this has got to be up there as one of the most important criteria for deciding if a new position is going to come in. Do I know the business well enough to 
really track it? And do I know what to track? And that's why we talk about these KPIs. And that's why I built a platform for, for tracking them easier to make it easier for people understanding the key drivers of the business. Yeah, exactly. The third point here, if you are thinking of adding to an existing position, how concentrated are you in it? Because, you know, your top holding in your portfolio is probably, and well, at least I'm hoping it's one of your top conviction holdings. Now, during a bear market, you're probably salivating at the idea of adding more to it because, you know, again, I'm hoping that it's probably one of your top conviction. Now, if that holding is 20% of your portfolio, should you be adding to it? Because that's a pretty large portion. I can't answer that for you because, you know, if it's 20% of your portfolio, just know that, you know, it's very concentrated, but you might be okay with that risk. I know, Brayden, you do have some pretty large positions. I have some myself. But for someone else, 5% might be more than enough because they don't want to be that overly concentrated in one position. Just be aware, the more concentrated you are, the more it can be good or bad, depending on where that holding is going. So if there's a big drawdown and say it's like 30% of your portfolio, you know, it's going to hurt quite a bit. But of course, same thing. We've talked about it. A lot of the billionaires, they're all a lot concentrated in, you know, their main business. So you kind of have to weigh both sides. But again, to that same logic here, Maybe you have a holding that's 1% of your total portfolio and you really like it and have been looking to add to it because the valuation was just too high and right now it's a good valuation to add to it. So I think concentration and what you already have in your existing holding is also something important to look at. I wholeheartedly agree with this. Match it to your conviction and... Unless you're a psychopath like me, you know, owning 40% in one name into your portfolio is probably reckless unless you have extreme conviction and understand the business extremely well. And I like to think, I like to think I have those boxes checked to be able to have a position as large as some of the ones I do. Yeah. And you also know the risks, right? So I think that's important. Obviously, I think Constellation's a great business. I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon, but, you know, it's still a risk to be very concentrated in one holding. The last thing here I'll mention is consider just doing a starter position. Say you're pretty close to your maximum amount of holdings that you're comfortable in your portfolio and you have a few existing holdings that you may not be sure whether you want to keep or not, but you want to give it a few more quarters before you make a decision because you don't want to make any rash decision. I mean, what you could consider is just just starting a starter position, a very small percentage. You know, it could be something like 1% of your portfolio because the benefit of doing this and like I referred to that earlier is that you have that extra incentive to follow it even closer because you have that skin in the game. So that's something you can consider, you know, if you have, you know, already a lot of holdings, you may not want to necessarily sell some or you just, you know, you want to wait and see before you decide to sell, but you really like, you know, company ABC and the valuation is very attractive. Well, you know, maybe do a starter position and you can always add to it in the future if, again, your premise works out and your conviction is growing and still there for that new business. Especially if you're still in the process of understanding the business to a level that you're comfortable with yeah. owning it as a, mm-hmm. like a full size. I think I think this is really smart. Sometimes that like kind of incentive or push to as being a shareholder to learn more and follow their quarters 
I think that that makes a lot of sense because you know how incentivized are you to follow quarter after quarter of a business that's just on your watch list versus you know being a small position. I think that those incentives are entirely different and can be enough of a driver for for people. I don't love doing this, but I know a lot of people do. And I I kind of do do it though, although I say I don't love doing it. (laughs) It feels like as much as what I just said, it feels like I haven't done enough work yet and I'm just like, screw it, let's do it. And so I, I don't love doing it. Although I do do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's that's basically is the way I'm thinking about this. I'm kind of like that too. I've done it just a couple times on top of my head. And for the most part, just because of the time commitment required, I tend to be pretty strict on those 20 holdings. So if I'm looking to add to a new business and I know it well enough and I have strong enough conviction, I will review my portfolio. And there's usually one or two where conviction level is you know, maybe not as high as it should be. And then, like I mentioned, my previous point, I'll just, you know, sometimes just give it a few more quarters, see where it goes, and then I'll take a decision. Then usually if it's a a good business that you're thinking of starting a position, you know, a couple quarters will usually not make the biggest difference. It might, but I'm willing to wait a little bit of time and just do some more research on that new business as well. If it's a great business now, it's going to hopefully yeah still be a great business in a couple of quarters and if it's not then it wasn't a great business to begin with no the only thing though it's is the valuation right maybe the valuation right. was attractive but again could go right. both ways as we're seeing right now if you're in a bear market it could be even more attractive in two quarters so yeah give and go a little bit there i totally agree 100 percent. all right thanks for listening to the canadian investor podcast If you are on Apple Podcasts, can you throw us a little review? If you like the podcast, you listen every week, and you throw in there, throw a little five stars, give us some feedback, only if it's good, duh, and throw that in there because that helps us organically grow on the Apple Podcast player. There's not a spot to write anything in Spotify yet, but you can throw us five stars in the top of the podcast player there for our podcast. We appreciate that very much. If you are a real estate investor, say you own a couple income properties, or thinking of getting in the real estate game, we do have a second podcast now called The Canadian Real Estate Investor, which you can find on your podcast player. Go ahead. If you've been thinking about listening to it, we've been talking about it you know, for the past two months, thinking about getting in the real estate game, things are changing a lot with interest rates and the prices of of real estate in especially around here and all across Canada and it's it's a very dynamic and changing type of scenario so go listen to Dan and Nick at the Canadian Real Estate Investor show as well Simon anything else any, no, anything no. else on, on the slate? I think that's it. Yeah, definitely will be uh, for those who are on jointci.com. We'll be oh, yeah, uh, probably yeah. over the weekend. We'll be adding our moves. There's been quite a few for me. So mm. just adding to some new positions, obviously sold some, like I, I said, to the podcast. Not really adding new position, more like existing positions. There you go. Yeah. So for those who are on our Patreon, you'll see that probably I would say what Maybe early next week at the latest. I know you're busy until the, the end of the week. Yeah, we do it at the beginning of every month. So it falls on the weekend. So we'll have it ready for, for Monday, October 3rd. Yeah, there you go. And is the market closed on Friday? Yeah, uh, I think and, so. I think it might truth be. Truth and Reconciliation, yeah. is the market closed? I'm not sure. 
And then Thanksgiving, uh, the following Monday, the market is closed. So next week, the market will be will be fully open and our updates to our portfolio on jointtci.com will be there. Lots of move from you. I've been pretty lethargic, but I think next month I'll be quite active just as, you know, accumulate a little bit of cash and deploy it. So that is at jointtci.com. It's very affordable for the podcast listeners. You get some stuff. You get a spreadsheet too to help track your portfolio, the exact one that we use. And uh, people have been loving that. So that's at jointtci.com. We'll see you in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.